by downloading or listening to this podcast. You are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. And welcome to the first episode of our brand new podcast, Moody's Talks Focus on Finance, where we cover recent events and longer term trends affecting the credit of banks, insurance companies, and asset managers. I'm your host, Danielle Reed, coming to you from New York. With many global financial companies having their employees work from home, and with demand for contactless payments, cash transfers, and other remote banking services on the rise given the coronavirus pandemic, Bank cybersecurity has become even more vital and top of mind. In today's episode, joining me in New York is Michael Porta of the Financial Institutions Group, who will be exploring what this means for banks. Michael, what's ahead on this? Hi, Danielle. Glad to join. Well, cyber attackers target banks because, by definition, that's where the money is. And with more and more transactions happening online, as you mentioned, it follows that cyber attacks have become a bigger threat. So we'll have Alessandro Riccati of the banking team on later to explain the key cyber vulnerabilities of banks and how the banks are protecting themselves. Thanks, Michael. Alessandro will beam in from London to discuss banks' heightened cyber risk in a few minutes. But first, I'm joined by Steve Tu of the asset management team to talk about a different financial stress uncovered by the coronavirus pandemic, and that is stress in money market funds that could actually lead to the scaling back or even eventual disappearance of U.S. institutional prime money market funds. Steve, welcome to Focus on Finance. Thanks a lot for having me here. Steve, institutional prime funds, which are money market funds that invest in short-term corporate debt and whose investors are financial firms rather than individuals, these funds have been in trouble before. The last time most of our listeners remember was probably around the financial crisis of 2007 to 2009. Back then, the U.S. government had to get involved to help stabilize them and provide liquidity. This past March, there was a similar crisis in U.S. money fund markets, and the government stepped in again to help. But your feeling is this crisis is a bit different, and institutional prime funds might just not come back in the same way as they have in the past. Why is this time different? Yeah, so the key this time around is that the questioning of the prime model seems to be coming from the industry itself uh, and its largest players. Uh, so in this recent uh, you know, crisis period, we saw two large players actually exit the field. Uh, we didn't see that in the past. They were always trying to you know, work with the regulators to try to keep the product alive and, and fight for its survival. Uh, but you know, this time around, whereas in the past we saw smaller players exit, you know, now we're seeing you know, large players exit. And this is even before uh, new regulations uh, come down the road. Taking a step back for just a minute, why is it that fund sponsors end up having to step in and support their prime funds so much in the first place? Yeah, so th- this is actually a controversial practice. Uh, you know, Moody's has written about this in the past. The basic issue is that money market funds compete with bank deposits uh, for clients. And, you know, whereas bank deposits have a, a built-in, you know, backstop, which is the FDIC, money market funds don't have that. And, you know, if you think about it, 
a depositor puts in a dollar into a bank, they'll generally get a dollar back. And if something goes wrong, the FDIC will make call on that. But when a when an investor puts in a dollar into a money market fund, it's going into a portfolio where these securities, you know, corporate debt, um, you know, commercial paper, uh, they fluctuate in value uh, due to rising and decreasing interest rates, credit spreads, widening and tightening. And so there's uncertainty whether or not, uh, you know, they can get that dollar back, but they try to fix that. But then the real issue comes in is where there's, let's say there's credit losses. Um, you know, someone has to make that investor whole again. And typically what's happened in the past is that uh, sponsors will come in, uh, purchase securities from those portfolios or use other methods to try to make the investor whole. Now, you've talked about three main reasons why sponsors would choose to close institutional prime funds. And I guess one reason has got to be connected to this structural challenge that every prime fund faces, which is the fixed uh, $1 net asset value they're targeting versus portfolios of securities whose values fluctuate. But what are the three main reasons in your mind that sponsors would choose to close institutional prime funds? Yeah, so the three main reasons that we think uh, sponsors are choosing to exit now is that one, you know, as you, as you mentioned, they release themselves of this obligation to support their funds. Uh, and then two, the revenue contribution from prime funds is down significantly than what it was in the past. So it's a lot less painful to exit the business. And historically, prime funds have accounted for anywhere from you know, 60 to almost 80% of money market fund revenues. And now it's you know, after the reforms that were enacted in 2016, you know, lower, lower interest rates and less yield differentiation between uh, prime funds and government funds and investor attrition that comes with that, uh, it's now closer to about 20%. So it's a lot less painful for in, uh, the fund sponsors to exit this business. Um, and then the third is, uh, you know, from the investor side, uh, the yield differentiation is not there anymore. So they're taking on extra risk by investing in prime paper, uh, but they're not getting that yield compensation that they were getting in the past. So, you know, that's also factoring into why assets have been dwindling in these funds for the past few years. Still, there are some reasons fund sponsors might want to keep prime funds, Right. Don't these funds generate more in fees than government and treasury money market funds? Yeah, say so they do, but you know it's not as not as much as it used to be in the past. Uh, but you know the reasons that they would want to keep these products around, you know, one is they do generate revenues. Uh, it is AUM that's within the house. Uh, but you know when they let's say they close the funds, there's a chance that some of that AUM is going to get recaptured back into government and treasury money market funds. But the considerations for them to keep it open would be extra revenue generation from the assets that they have. Uh, and then also potentially, you know, it's more diversification in terms of uh, different products that the investors can choose from. And then third, they do benefit from higher credit spreads if they increase in the future. Uh, so, you know, they're going to be exiting a product with that kind of uh, characteristic. Now, I did have one more question kind of on the side of why fund sponsors might want to exit after all, and that's about government intervention. Uh, because of the need for this latest government intervention most recently, is there a sense out there among fund sponsors that there could be a new wave of regulation that just might make institutional prime funds more difficult or more costly to manage than they have been? 
Yeah, so that that's another thing to be mindful of. Uh, so historically, uh, whenever the industry has had uh, government intervention to support it, it does lead to more regulations, and and that makes the funds more difficult to manage. And this time around, you know, the Fed had to step in to set up the MMLF, which is specifically designed to purchase securities, you know, that the prime money funds and the muni money funds were were holding. And we would think that following this, uh, there will be more regulations coming out that will make these funds more difficult to manage. Steve, thanks so much for joining us. Next up, we have Michael Porta talking to Alessandro Roccati of the banking team about bank cyber risk. Michael, over to you. Thanks, Danielle. And welcome to Focus on Finance, Alessandro. Hi, Michael, and uh, hello, everyone. So, Alessandro, your recent report covered the increase in bank cyber risk during the coronavirus pandemic. The two key sources of cyber risk you identified, if I recall, were increased digital banking uh, by customers and remote work among the bank's workforce. Are these particular to the present crisis? Both factors you mentioned will increase vulnerability to cyber attacks. The social restrictions to contain the coronavirus will accelerate to trends. The first one is migration to digital online banking, both by businesses and consumers. And the second one is implementation of remote work, more bank employees working from home on a regular basis. Now, the risk is real. Between February and April 2020, cyber attacks increased by around 240%. And ransomware attacks increased nine times. That's according to a report from VMware Carbon Black. Wow, that increase in ransomware attacks is especially sharp. Uh, for our listeners, those attacks threaten to publish the victim's data or hold it hostage unless a ransom payment is made by the institution under attack. Understandably, that kind of threat ranks pretty high on the list of banks' concerns, I would think. And Alessandro, I think you cited some World Economic Forum data to that effect in your report. Corporate managers are well aware of the cyber threats. Um, according to a report from the World Economic Forum, an increase in cyber attacks and data fraud is the fourth most worrisome fallout from coronavirus. Right. Uh, I think about half of respondents to that survey cited cyber risk as one of their greatest concerns. That was exceeded, I think, by only prolonged global recession at around two-thirds and not too far behind a surge in bankruptcies, which obviously would matter to a bank, industry consolidation in the low 50s, and failure of some sectors to recover. I, I assume that would be sectors to which the banks are highly exposed. Looking ahead, do you think the changes in customer behavior, bank workforce arrangements, and the corresponding increase in cyber attacks will last beyond the crisis? These uh, structural changes we are witnessing will have uh, both an immediate and uh, long-lasting impact on uh, the bank's business. Now, long-term, uh, we believe they will accelerate the typical technology adoption cycle. Got it. So, in one way, this is just forcing banks to advance efforts that have already been underway across the industry. On the customer side of the equation, I know there's already been a motivation to enhance digital offerings because of competition from new fintech entrants. Increased remote work is maybe newer, but both developments are going to help banks improve their productivity. Uh, with that, obviously, they're opening fertile ground to bad actors to uh, attack, as, as you've mentioned. What do you think are the bank's key vulnerabilities to cyber attackers right now? as they are shifting their business models in response to the coronavirus. We identify a number of vulnerabilities which uh, have increased the risk of uh, successful attacks. 
Uh, on the greater use of uh, digital banking, we see that the increased strains on uh, banks' uh, IT infrastructures due to the rapid uh, rollouts of uh, new digital solutions will increase uh, the exposure to cyber attacks. Uh, banks' new digital customers are also target for fraudsters through phishing emails and uh, social engineering. Now, on the other side, the increase in the remote work has uh, also increased the risk of uh, successful cyber attacks. Home devices used uh, to access the office network are more likely to be infected by uh, malware. Unsecure home uh, Wi-Fi networks may use routers uh, with uh, weaker security and uh, VPN software products also have their own security issues. Yes, I think we're all well familiar with increased use of uh, digital technology to work these days. Getting back to uh, cyber attackers, you say in your report that most of them seem to be financially motivated, uh, looking to access data that they can monetize. But is it simply money that these attackers are after, or are there other temptations a cyber criminal might have? 91% of uh, cyber actors are financially motivated in order to access uh, easily monetized data stored by the banks. Now, in terms of uh, attackers and cyber attackers, the majority of attacks in these sectors are perpetrated by external actors. That's two thirds of the total, followed by internal financially motivated actors uh, around one fifth. And there is also a component of uh, uh, internal actors uh, committing errors. That's around nine percent. So mostly outside uh, attacks uh, with a smaller amount of internally motivated actors uh, looking to make a financial gain or perhaps just committing an error that lets in uh, an external attack. With regard to external attacks, I think it's fair to say that banks have needed to defend their financial data for some time. It's not a new risk, especially given the reputational and regulatory risk involved beyond the operational disruption and financial losses a bank might incur. So it seems like the bank should be pretty well prepared to deflect these sort of attacks. Would you agree? In recent years, banks have uh, built strong uh, cyber risk uh, mitigants. Uh, that's include strong uh, corporate governance, uh, risk prevention and uh, response and uh, recovery readiness, but also information sharing and uh, third-party oversight. Uh, banks have been uh, talking to each other more and more in recent years. They've been sharing information and insight about uh, cyber attack perpetrators, and that has made them more resilient. So information sharing is a, a key focus of the banks in, in making sure they're up to measure in defending against cyber attack. Before we close things, though, I think the big question on people's minds, and one I know Danielle is curious to hear your view on, is what happens if a bank does fall prey to a successful attack despite uh, their good preparedness? Thanks, Michael. Alessandro, in particular, what I'm interested in understanding is what is the average cost of a breach if a cyber attack on a bank were to succeed? Cyber attackers mostly target uh, personal data. That's 77% of the, the total, with a minority focus on uh, credential. That's around one third and on bank data uh, around uh, 30%. So, now, the average cost of a breach per customer record is uh, $210 in the financial sector. That's the second highest after the health uh, sector. And the average uh, overall cost of a data breach uh, for the financial sector is uh, 6 million. So cyber attacks are expensive for a bank. 
And then that's also on top of operational disruption and reputational damage, which are different kinds of costs of their own, if you want to look at them that way. Beyond the financial impact, a successful cyber attack also have uh, impact in terms of brand and reputation and in terms of legal uh, and regulatory consequences. Alessandro, thank you. Thanks very much to both of you for joining and thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Please tune in again on Wednesday, August 26th for our next episode of Moody's Talks Focus on Finance.